0: Following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. When I went off to college many many years ago, it was the first time that I was kind of living off on my own, and you know I'd grown up in a Christian home and. Going to university was the first time I was really exposed to all these new ideas and these new religions. And I found myself in a season where I was really trying to figure out if this Christian faith that I had was something that I could truly call my own or if it was just something, you know, that was passed down to me from my parents. And, you know, at the University of Illinois, at least when I was there, um, almost every year in the fall, uh, for a few days, there would be this guy named Cliff Connectly. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him. Um, I think he he was he uh, worked for he was a pastor, but he also worked for university, and he was a Christian apologist. And he would come to our school, and he would find a spot in the middle of the quad on the campus, and he would just share the gospel, and he would just openly debate with anyone that would just come and that had questions about the Bible or about the Christian faith. And I remember like just being so drawn to him. I mean, it was for the first time I just hearing a guy be able to just really unpack and explain um, the Christian faith in such an eloquent way. And I remember sitting there for hours, just fascinated by the questions that he would get from, you know, a lot of these skeptics, cynics, and and just listening to the ways that he would respond. And, you know, these large crowds would come out, many of whom were very hostile to Christianity. And he'd always respond with truth, and often in such a winsome way that it, it seemed like every year, like a handful of students would come to faith. And then there was this other guy named Max, okay? And he would also come out, and he would preach the gospel too. And this isn't a picture of Max, but this is how I remember him. He looked kind of like this. <laughs> um, and he was there like almost year-round, okay? I think he lived in the area. And he was, he was an older guy, probably in his 60s. And he'd come out with this thick Bible, and he would find a spot in the quad just like Cliff would. But he was very different. You know, he had one basic preaching style that was fire and brimstone, you know, and he had one basic message. He'd just say, y'all are sinners. Y'all are going to hell. You know? That was his message. That was it. It's like all he said. And students would refer to him as Mad Max. That was his nickname because he always seemed angry. And, you know, to be honest, you looked at him in the quad. There was like rarely anyone around him. He was just like preaching the air. Nobody wanted to hear his message, right? But every once in a while, there would be a, a handful of people heckling him. And I remember one time, there, was a, there were a couple dogs on the quad that people had that, you know, going out for a walk, and they were getting frisky with one another. And, w- and one guy was pointing at, at Max, and he was crying out like, Fornicator! Fornicator! That dog's a fornicator! He's going to hell! And everyone would just start laughing and just mocking Max. And I remember thinking like, man, it's just, just shame, you know, shame for him, um, You know, even as a Christian, just feeling like, what is this guy doing out here? You know, you're not going to convert a single person with this message. No love, all judgment, no gospel, just yelling in anger, crying out for repentance. And to be honest, you know, I I wish this guy would just go away because, you know, I felt like he was giving Christians a bad name. And I'm not sure if any of you have encountered a Mad Max in your life, but I think most of us would probably feel the same way right who would possibly respond to a message like that why waste your time preaching this kind of message that people don't want to hear there's no way they're going to change and yet when we get to jonah chapter 3 we see a a message actually very similar to mad max but we we see a response that we would never expect let's turn to jonah chapter 3 we're going to read the whole chapter together So that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Amen. So, you know, here we have a prophet who has run from God's calling to go and preach to the Ninevites. He's been over, thrown overboard in the middle of a great storm. He's been swallowed by a fish. After spending three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, now he spit onto shore. In the very first verse of chapter 3, it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The second time. There's something very powerful, I think, about those words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You know, God was not only giving the city of Nineveh an opportunity to turn from their sin. He was giving Jonah another opportunity as well. And I think this is just like God, a God of second chances. And, you know, uh, last week I mentioned that the book of Jonah could have very well ended with chapter 1. right? That, chap- that chapter alone could have made a very compelling morality tale, right a warning for those who reject and run from God. And no one could argue that God was unfair if that was just the entire story of Jonah. God also could have ended the story of Jonah with chapter 2. Man runs from God to his own demise. God saves him. Wow, what a God. God cares for Jonah. But God's not done writing this story yet. And his heart and his mission is much bigger than the salvation of one man. And so the story continues. You know, it's fascinating to me that Jonah cannot stop God's grace. Even in his disobedience, he only enlarges it. And while Jonah is trying to run from preaching to the Ninevites, God actually uses Jonah's disobedience to draw these pagan sailors who unwittingly come across Jonah in his running from God. If Jonah had not run, they would not have been introduced to Jonah's God in such a dramatic way. You know, even when we try to frustrate God's plans, we cannot. In fact, in his perfect sovereignty, we see God use Jonah's disobedience to actually bring even more people to himself. And when we come to chapter 3, we now see a God whose love goes far beyond the limits of even our own imaginations. We see a, a love extending to a people that no one, especially this Hebrew prophet, could possibly fathom to love. You know, from the opening verses, we're told that Nineveh is not just any city. It's a great city. You know, there's some debate about the extent of how big this city is based on you know the text that describes it as a three-day journey in size. But make no mistake, this, this was a great city in its day. It was great in size, great in stature, great in number. In chapter 4, we learn there's 120,000 residents in this city. But in all its greatness, the reputation of the city was not great. During the time of Jonah, the nation of Assyria, which Nineveh was the capital city, they had this legendary reputation of being an exceptionally cruel and violent nation. And they took great pride in this. And they would commission sculptors to carve out gruesome post-battle scenes on their large stone panels throughout the city. And they would write out descriptions on pillars and obelisks throughout the city, boasting of all the different grisly ways that they would torture their prisoners. And the Assyrian king, he represented their national god, Asher, who was known as a god of war. And let me just read for you what one Assyrian king who preceded Jonah wrote upon one of his military conquests. I think it will give you just a picture of of their violent nature. He writes this, "I, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me, and draped their skins over their piles of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built them with them a tower before their city. I burned their adolescent boys and girls and I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. <laughs> gruesome, gruesome people. They didn't just practice violence. They celebrated it. Uh, you know, I think they would make the terror group ISIS look like a Girl Scout troop today. And I could say more about, I'm, I'm actually holding back a bit from telling you just how graphically violent these people were. And to be honest, I, I, was, I was getting nauseous even reading about it. And These are horrifically violent people with zero moral conscience. And they reveled in it. You know, suddenly Jonah doesn't seem like such a bad guy, right, for refusing this mission. Who would want to go and minister to these savages? I could just imagine Jonah entering these city gates and depicting all these gruesome scenes and celebrating violence even against his own people and how hard that must have been for him. Everywhere he looked, he could just see how utterly depraved and sinful these people were. And for him, it was like he would either die a violent death in their hands or they would repent and be spared. And to be honest, neither of these options seemed all that attractive to Jonah, which is why he ran. This small-town prophet from Gath Hefford, just a nondescript village near Nazareth, he's making this long journey in obedience to God's second call. This message that God gives Jonah is is an incredibly simple one. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's just eight words in English, only five in Hebrew. I wish my weekly sermon preparation was this simple. I wish my preaching had the same results as Jonah. And, you know, when you see this, it's just incredible. This simple message was all it took, and it took immediately. We are told that the Ninevites believed God on the first day. They didn't waste any time. And their belief wasn't just intellectual. It was dramatic, their response in their size and scope. We're told they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And as remarkable as the response is that we see from the people of Nineveh, what's most stunning is the response of their king. You know, we're told that he rises from his throne and he takes off his robes and he puts on sackcloth. And he sits in ashes. Just imagine, in majesty, on a royal throne, now in sackcloth, sitting in ashes. Just incredible transformation. You know, A king, a king with any sense of pride would, would not let the actions of his people dictate his own, right? But here we find a king who's not only humble enough to repent, but humble enough to follow the people's lead and take them to another level. The king realizes the seriousness of their situation and their sin, and he expands the fast to include even the animals in the city, to cry out to God, this God of Israel, to repent. Very specifically about their evil and their sinful violence. Right? He's not just confessing; he's naming his sin, and he's calling the people to name it and to repent. You know, it's interesting that the king requires the animals to participate in this fast and the wearing of sackcloth, too. And if you could just picture it, you know, <laughs> just being there, all these chickens and goats and cows dressed up in sackcloth. I mean, it must have been a, like, a ridiculous scene, right? These animals, these poor animals, they have no idea what's happening. But they do know that they went from getting fed daily to suddenly having no food. And so you can be sure they're crying out and they're moaning just as loud as the people. And can you imagine just what all of these combined sounds of 120,000 people just crying out, all these animals crying out must have sounded like in a city this size. But what's most remarkable here is just this mustard seed of faith that this king displays in the love and compassion of a God that he doesn't even know. This king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This king knew very little about the God of Jonah, and yet with almost nothing to go on, he demonstrates an extraordinary amount of humility and enough faith in this Hebrew God's compassion to respond in the way that he does. He was putting all his hopes in that possibility. You know, meanwhile, in stark contrast, you have the Israelites who enjoyed this long and rich history of seeing God's compassion and his steadfast love lavished on generations upon generations of his people. And yet their response to their own prophets is nothing like this. It's interesting, you know, right around the same time period, the Old Testament prophets, Hosea, Joel and Amos were all prophesying to Israel. And what's Israel's response to them? It's, it's either complete apathy and indifference or just kill the messenger. It's nothing like these Ninevites. And you just think about that. What a stinging rebuke that should have been to the people of Israel, living in their own sin, to see how their sworn enemies were responding to their God and to their prophet. And as I mentioned, the last two weeks, up to this point, everything in this story has been moving in this kind of downward spiral, whether it's Jonah's descent to this boat headed to Tarshish in chapter 1, to in chapter 2, where we see him sinking down towards the seafloor. But in chapter 3, this downward descent just all comes to an end. Things don't move down anymore. In fact, everything is actually not down. It's flipped upside down. And it all hinges on this word that we find in this chapter for repentance. The meaning of the root word in Hebrew means overturned or completely destroyed, but it can also mean turned over or turning away, repentance. And this is so interesting to me because that's really the fate of all of us, isn't it? That we either turn over and we repent or we're overturned, we're destroyed, we perish. These are really the only two possible outcomes for all of us. And God's invitation is for us to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn ourselves over in humility so that we would not be overturned. We wouldn't perish in our own sin. And that is literally what repentance means. Not just confessing sin, but turning away from it. And God, in his own compassion, turns everything on its head. And all it takes is a call to repentance and an answering to that call. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah chapter 3 gives us a powerful picture of the upside-down nature of God's mercy and grace. How can someone so undeserving be lavished with so great a mercy. I don't think you can manipulate God or reduce the way that he works to a formula, but if there's one thing that you consistently see throughout Scripture, it's that God always responds to repentance born from a sincere humility. Psalm 51.17 says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The scent of Nineveh's wickedness was rising up to God. That's the picture we see in the opening of this book. But now in a dramatic turnaround, this image is now replaced with the incense of repentance rising before a compassionate God. The sacrifice of a broken and a contrite spirit. And God responds as he always does. You know, of all the miracles in the Bible, you can make an argument, I think, that this might be the greatest miracle of all, right? In the book of Acts, we're told that Peter preached a message that resulted in 3,000 getting saved in one day. Jonah's message blows that away, right? 120,000. It's like 40 times more. You know, the Gospels are overflowing with examples of people we would never expect to come to faith, and yet people that everyone else had written off. And this was one of the greatest struggles of the early church. How could God's plan of salvation include the Gentiles? Most Jews, even Peter, could not wrap their minds around it. And what this reveals within us is something that we need to come face to fa- face with, is that anyone can be transformed by God's grace, because everyone comes from the same place. None of us bring anything to the table. If we did, then we can begin to draw the lines of grace, where it begins and where it ends. And that's the temptation, isn't it? You deserve it. You don't deserve it. I certainly deserve it. But that's not true grace. You know, when I was in in college, um, I took an evangelism class that was run by our church that I attended and one of the assignments that we were given was that we had to go out and cold witness to at least one person every week. And we had to journal about our experience and then share it at our next class. And I'll be honest, it is very nerve wracking. You know, um, just walking up to complete strangers and trying to share your faith. Uh, I wasn't nearly as eloquent as Cliff Connectly. But every week, you know, I'd walk around campus looking for opportunities to share the gospel with whoever, whoever I felt like God was leading me to. And I don't know, how do you discern who's ready to hear, receive the gospel just by looking at them, right? But I'd walk around praying and, you know, looking for someone who kind of fit a certain profile in my mind. And someone who was dressed nicely, you know, someone who had a pleasant face, kind demeanor, someone who looked like they weren't carrying weapons on them. You know, to me, these were the, the kind of people that were ripe for the gospel. And this one day, I remember I was... Going into a McDonald's, and I spotted this Chinese international student who was eating by himself. He was wearing a button-down shirt, khaki pants. I could totally see him attending my church. <laughs> so I sat down, and I just started to small talk with him, and he was really polite, very pleasant. And then I started sharing my faith with him, and I started sharing the gospel. And, and suddenly, this guy like transformed into a completely different person. He was like visibly upset. And he just got up, and he was, like, shaking, and he grabbed his tray, and he just started yelling at me in broken English. He's like, I was just eating my lunch, and you come over to talk to me about God? He's like, go away. Leave me alone. And, you know, I was shocked at his reaction. I would never guess this guy was capable of of that, and he was really angry. And so, you know, I went back to my evangelism class, and I told everyone about how I had been persecuted for Jesus that day. (laughs) And um, after that experience, I really didn't want to go cold witnessing again. I was scarred. I was really discouraged. And I remember thinking, like, why are we doing this? Like, this seems so pointless. You know, no one comes to faith this way. But not long after that, you know, I got convicted to go out again. And this time I didn't want to go by myself, so I asked my roommate to come with me. And so it was a really nice day. I remember we went out to the quad and we tried to find someone who looked like they needed Jesus. And I don't know why, but we saw this Hispanic guy sitting on the grass by himself. And to be honest, he looked kind of scary. You know, he was a pretty buff dude. And I don't know if he was part of a gang, but he kind of had that look. And we were kind of nervous about approaching him, but we both felt like this was the guy that God wanted us to talk to. And so we walked over, we sat next to him, and we just started sharing with him the gospel. And about 10 minutes into it, you know, this guy's just staring into space out in the quad. And all of a sudden, you just see this tear just kind of roll down his cheek. And then he just starts sharing with us that he's just really gone through some really difficult times. And he felt like God was literally speaking to him through us. And my roommate and I were like both looking at each other like, I can't believe this is happening. you know. <laughs> and we prayed with him. And I believe he accepted Christ. And only God knows for sure. I've never, not seen him since that day. But we were just blown away. And of all the people that I'd shared the gospel with, this was the last guy I thought who would ever receive it. And you know, I've been thinking about those days when I was in college this week, and I, and I got really convicted about how my heart for the lost has, has just really waned over the years. You know, even though it was a struggle to share the gospel. I still went out and did it, not just because it was an assignment, because deep down, you know, I believed it was possible that God could change anyone at any time, in any way he chooses. And he wanted to use me to do it. It's so easy to write certain people off, right? And there's no way this person will ever change. What's the point in even trying? Sometimes... You know, it's, it's even worse. It's, it's, I don't even want this person to change. I don't think they deserve it. But through the story of Jonah, God challenges us, even shocks us with just how wide, how deep, how great is his love, and how small ours is in comparison. Who do you see as irredeemable in your life? Who is it that we would never even consider approaching with the gospel because we don't have any hope that they could be saved? Maybe we don't even want them to be saved. Who is it that we've written off? I think it's so easy to come to church, to talk like a church person, and to dichotomize your life between church and everything else, work, and to not even think about these people that we're interacting with daily who just don't know Jesus and who need Jesus and just to, to not even let it cross our mind that, gosh, maybe they need to hear the gospel. Maybe God's calling me to be that person, to be an agent of his grace and mercy. I mean, how often do we think about even our coworkers and their eternal destiny in the midst of just trying to meet a deadline or get a project done? You know, I think, I know many of us, even, you know, we have family members who don't know Jesus or maybe even hostile towards your faith. Many of us who have spouses or parents that we're praying for, maybe for years, and we've lost hope. We just, we don't, we can't muster up the faith anymore to believe that, that God can do a work in their life, and that God wants to do a work in their life, and God wants, use to, to, wants to use us to do that work. You know, if you recall in my first message in Jonah two weeks ago, uh, we learned that Jonah's first prophetic mission was to his own people and to his own king. And it was to grow the nation and to expand the geographic boundaries of Israel, even though they were living in sin, even though they didn't deserve it. And during a season when God had expanded the boundaries of Israel with an undeserved grace, he was now through Jonah asking them to expand the boundaries of their heart for a people who also did not deserve grace. And that's just like God. To bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. To lavish us with his grace so that we can be an agent of grace to others. And it's just like God to shock us, to astonish us with just how big and how wide his heart is because we're always trying to reduce it to our puny little standards. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Tax collectors, prostitutes, Samaritans, lepers, none seemed worthy of redemption. It's scandalous. And yet these are the very ones that Jesus calls and draws to himself. And no one could understand it. And I think we're all guilty of this. We, we all place limitations on God's love and his mercy. And we, we all have people we think, well, ne- they'll never change. Not now, not ever. And yet Jonah chapter 3 tells us that God can change anyone, anytime, place, any way. Do you believe that's possible? Who are we to push people outside of the mercy of God? Who are we to place limits on God's ability to seek and save the lost? Who are we to determine who is worthy of God's grace when we ourselves are unworthy recipients of it? The very people that we have written off in our lives are the very people that God desires to save. God's love is so much bigger than ours and through the Ninevites, these horrible, horrible people, violent. God is awakening Jonah and Israel to the depths of his love. And like Jonah, he wants you to be his agent of mercy, to be his agent of grace. And he's asking us to answer that call. Let's pray together. You know, if Jonah chapter 2 is drinking from the fountain of God's grace, then Jonah chapter 3, I think, is, is trying to wrap your mouth around a fire hose. It's overwhelming. God's love is far bigger than we can imagine. And his desire is that We would share in his love and be a messenger of his love, especially to a people no one else, including ourselves, we feel is lovable. And if God has brought people into your life that you find extremely difficult to love, it is for a reason. I believe he wants you to grow in his love, even by sharing it with those you think don't deserve it. You know, we um, we have a little more time today than we do usually at the end of a sermon, and um, I want to spend a little extended time in prayer because um, I think the Lord does have someone in your heart right now in this moment that you have to confess that you've written off. And yet God is moving you to to be that agent of grace to them. I think one of the most telltale signs that we've lost hope in someone's redemption is if we've stopped praying for them. So why don't we begin there? Praying for those that we find difficult to love. Praying for those that we've lost hope in, of changing. Praying for those that everyone else has forgotten. So uh, we're going to spend a a few extra minutes in prayer today. Um, Let's just let the Lord speak into our hearts, whoever that person is or people are. Let's pray for them. Let's ask God to move our hearts um, to not just pray and let it end there, but even be an agent of grace um, by modeling and speaking and representing the gospel to them. Um, Let's just spend uh, some time praying and then in a moment the worship team will lead us in worship.